Um, turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 38. And as you're doing that, uh, I'll say a few words to kind of uh, get us prepared for what is to come. We had just finished off Elihu. And, and um, as I've approached uh, our understanding of Elihu, I believe Elihu to be speaking on behalf of God like a prophet, a younger man, but with the wisdom of the Lord, not always gentle, but very direct and, and pointing out and I think appropriate ways in which Job has erred. And unlike the other three friends, his point is not that Job has erred in terms of having sinned, and now all of these calamities have come into his life because of his sin. No, he says the opposite. Job doesn't suffer because of sinning. He's saying Job suffered, and he didn't deserve that suffering. But in the midst of that suffering, his attitude has shifted. And he has begun to sin. He has questioned certain things about who God is and what God does and whether God is fair and why the unrighteous are flourishing when the righteous are suffering. If God even knows, if God even cares, and why doesn't God finally come and answer his questions? That's, that's the gist of Job's, I think, his fall, his problem, his sin. And... I think what is helpful at this juncture, when we get to chapter 38, Elihu has finished his four speeches. By the way, we remind you that there was no rejoinder. With every other speech that was spoken to Job, Job had a response and then something else to say. And we went through that cycle three times with the three friends, right? But when Elihu speaks, nobody else challenges. To me, it implies that at least there is some thoughtfulness, that Job is listening that he must have some sense of, of, okay, I could hear that. That's a fair thing to say. I, I, okay, m- maybe that's true, right? Like he must be at least willing to hear the argument of this young prophet. And before he can answer, before he does respond, here comes God. Chapter 38 begins um, a number of chapters in which God will now finally answer Job, this is God's answer. This is chapter 38, all of chapter 38, and the first part of, uh, um, up to uh, chapter 39, first part of verse 40, will be um, God's first speech to Job. He'll have a second speech to Job in the early part of chapter 40, all the way through chapter 40, 41, 42. And that will be his second speech. Today we'll only be looking at the first half of the first speech. And I, I know, I, I just realized as I'm saying all these first and second, and you're just totally confused, and that's cool. It, do, it doesn't really matter if you remember how many speeches and what section we're doing. We'll, we'll walk us through each one, all right? Um, but this, just to kind of set us up, is about how God will answer Job. And if you think about it by extension and by application for us, when we are in that moment where life feels so heavy and difficult and painful and broken, and we're kind of wondering, Lord, like, where are you? Why aren't you here? You know? Well, we feel like, Lord, this isn't fair. And I thought you had everything in your hands. I thought you were absolutely sovereign. Why would you allow such a thing to happen? When we are at our wit's end and we are thinking those thoughts like, God, you could do better. I think us and Job have something in common. And so whatever God says in response to Job will be as helpful to us as it will be helpful to Job. But can I warn you from the get-go, it will not be helpful to you as in he is going to unpack all the mysteries of the universe to you or to me or to Job. He's not going to simply say, okay, I'm glad you asked because I've been dying to let you know. This has been my great plan from the start and gives him blow by blow every minutia of every person's life, unpacking everything that he does in every circumstance at every second, juggling a billion, trillion, quadrillion, Google million. I don't, there's other words I don't know, right? That are so infinite, the things that he has control over, one of the things we're going to realize is as finite beings, we have not the capacity to understand it all. And what he speaks of, what God demonstrates in terms of his grandeur and his absolute control brings us comfort, not because we finally have the answer I was looking for, 
but because we're reminded we have the God who has never lost control of anything and still has us in his hands. So that's the, the, the approach by which we should look to the speeches of God, God's answer to Job. So this is God's, God answers Job. And I think the first, um, the first speech uh, speaks of God's governance over creation than over the animals, right? But we're going to look at just over the, the creation. Am I off? I'm off. Hold on a sec. There we go. So there's an introduction section there where God introduces himself, in a sense, right? And what he's going to talk about in verses 1 through 3 of 38. And then, um, and then God begins to speak to Job in his answer through the discussion of the depths of the earth. And then second, uh, thirdly, right, he'll speak of, of God's sovereign control and his majesty through the wonders that come from the heavens. And so that, that's kind of our, our walk through. And because our passage, I mean, it's long, but it's not crazy long. It's not two chapters. We, we'll, we'll read it, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dive right in. Chapter 38 of the book of Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out of it? burst out from the womb when I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory, that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed? Or where is the east wind, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Meseroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinance of the the heavens? Can you establish their rule on earth? Can you lift your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, Here we are. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the the dust runs into a mass and the clouds stick fast together? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we read this, we realize we kind of end a mid-statement of your declaration of how no human being and no individual, no living creature has the capacity of you. And we thank you for that, that you are God, very God, and there is only one God. 
that human beings in their arrogance think that they deserve so much, that they should know so much, that they, they could do so much, and yet, Lord, we are talking about finite beings. Lord, would you humble us to hear the truth of Scripture, that there is a God, and that He is much to be exalted. He is much to be feared, and yet His love and His mercy cast upon us tells us He's much to be loved. We, we praise you for all that your scriptures will teach us and that uh, particularly for how your love is displayed for us in the sacrifice of your son. But may we today drink in your sovereignty and your glory to remind our hearts to not run away to all the things we demand, but to remember the God who has all things in his hands. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> God is here answering Job's question by speaking or actually asking a question, who governs creation? King Alfonso X is also known as Alfonso the Learned, king of Spain in the 13th century, and he once said this, had I been present, and I should probably put on airs, right, because he's probably arrogant, had I been present, I can't do the Spanish accent, right, at the creation, I would have given some useful hints for the better ordering of the universe. You get what he's saying? If I was there at creation, he might have given God a few hints. Hey, Lord, you know, like, uh, like water, when it expands, let's kind of keep in the same volume. going to cause trouble later. I promise you, in refrigerators, that's going to be issue, right? He would give hints. But he's not the first to think that he could offer God a little bit of useful knowledge, a little tip here and there, some useful hints to better order his universe. Job is a godly man of wisdom from the East. Similarly, he has come to some conviction. He's not angry completely at God. He just feels like God could do just a little bit better. He could run this world slightly better. God, Job questions God's fairness and wisdom, his righteousness and how he deals with the righteous and how he deals with the wicked. He questions God's wisdom, his purposes in allowing tragedy Right? And suffering for individuals that don't seem to deserve it. But more than suffering, this questioning of God's wisdom and purposes and fairness, this becomes Job's problem. It's not so much that Job is in pain, he is. Not so much that Job has been rejected by society and friends, he has. Those, those are significant and heavy things. And you may be going through similar health issues, social issues, problems at work or at school, right? Like you have, and we don't minimize that. Job is going through a difficult, circumstantial time. But his key problem is that he's beginning to question if God has ordered the universe correctly. Perhaps there's some tips or hints that he might offer. And so after repeated responses with Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, he has listened to Elihu and he's begun to contemplate whether or not he is in his heart in the wrong. And it's in that space that now God answer Job. And he begins with this introduction in verses 1 to 3. Verses 1 to 3 is really short, right? It just says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. So let's begin there, right? And in verse 1, it simply says that the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. We want to say a few things, right? From the whirlwind, God speaks to him. That's one, right? But I'll say four things from just verse 1. It is astounding, number one, that God shows up. God answers Job. That right there is astounding. Job has said, God, come and, come and hear me, right? Job 31, 35, the last thing he said about it was, oh, that I had one to hear me. Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. He's saying, man, I'm willing to sign the documents if God is willing to show up in court, right? He's been complaining that God is not willing. To, well, it's astounding. God literally comes and answers, he speaks verbally to Job. Secondly, it's an interesting point of fact that here God address, is addressed in the scriptures in verse 1 as Yahweh, right? Small caps, L-O-R-D. In our, in our you know, uh, modern translations, the small caps tell us that the, that the um, 
Um, the ineffable name, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, is being used. It would later, because remember Job is before the law, it would later become, in the time of Moses, um, it would become um, uh, God's covenant name. It, it becomes the name by which the nation of Israel and all followers of, of God, right, the God of the Bible, would refer to him. Right? It is the Lord. Who, who, who am I going to say, Exodus 3, that has sent me. It says, you tell them that the I am, that I am has sent you. And that, that I am, a bridge, becomes Yahweh, and that becomes his covenant, his, his personal name, to identify him with his people in faithfulness. So now, in the opening chapters, chapter 1 and 2, he is referred to as Yahweh. Then throughout the book, he's referred to as El or Eloah. He's referred to God or the Mighty One. Here, it's Yahweh that answers Job. So that tells us it is personal, it's direct, and it's revelation. And finally, we should mention, yeah, it does come from the whirlwind, which is crazy. The whirlwind just simply means it's a storm wind. And it could be anything from a hurricane. You know, hurricanes, like, you know, we don't really experience hurricanes in California. Praise the Lord, right? Uh, I take earthquakes over hurricanes or tornadoes anytime. But hurricanes and tornadoes, right? Tornadoes are, are a funnel of air that is so fast that pick up cars and throw things, right? It'll send like a, a plastic straw so fast that it'll drive into a concrete wall. This is true. This is outrageous. That's how fast things can fly in this whirlwind, right? Or a whirlwind might mean, uh, like I say, a hurricane where the winds are so driving that they could break apart houses and structures, I mean, this is just the wind, and this is how God answers, and there's something appropriate about it. Because both Elihu has been talking about the storms and how God masters the storms, and God himself, in this first section of his answer to Job, will similarly speak about the storms. So I think we, we should take it this intro this way, that God has appeared. That's amazing. He appears as Yahweh God, speaking personal revelation. That's amazing. And as he does so, he does it from a whirlwind, which suggests that a storm has come, that there's actual like crazy tornado-type storms, and that's where the voice of God is coming to Job. It's kind of like Mount Sinai when Israel was receiving the law, it's like the mountain was on fire, uh, lightning was coming down, earth was quaking, right? Smoke was going up. Like, like God gives them a visual, experiential sense of his greatness as he speaks. And this is what he's doing for Job. He's letting Job know that he controls the storms. And he's doing so by illustrating that, well, if you forgot what a storm is, this is what it looks like. This is what I'm talking out of, right? Well, secondly, in the intro, verse 2, he speaks against Job's darkened counsel. Look at verse 2. He says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? So whatever God is about to address, he is about to address in the issue, or particularly or angled through the issue of knowledge or lack thereof. Darkness is used of ignorance. It's used that way in Job. It's used that way throughout the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament. And Elihu had said that Job opens his mouth in empty talk. This is Job 35, 16. Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. Well, see, God seems to agree. It is Job's words that God has come to correct. Words spoken from ignorance and pride. He says, you darken counsel. You know, the idea of counsel being wisdom right, um, of, of being applications. He's saying you are darkening, you are bringing more ignorance to counsel and wisdom because you lack knowledge. You don't understand what is going on. See, Job's complaint is God is not doing it right. And I deserve to know what's happening. Why are the wicked flourishing? Why are the righteous suffering? It's all messed up and God is not doing it right. And God's response initially is Job, you're talking nonsense. You're talking out of darkness, out of not knowing. You're, you're speaking without knowing anything close to what the universe requires from a sovereign master. So against the darkened counsel, so we should expect much of what God has to say has to correct the way that Job thinks. And finally, 
he comes at Job with questions. You'll see it if you haven't, if you haven't picked up on it already as a reading um, before we prayed, right? The entire section is filled with who are you? Where were you? Didn't you do this? Oh, you didn't do that, right? Rhetorical questions. But he comes at him this way, verse 3, dress for action like a man. He is saying, suit up, right? It's, it's, it's like those Marvel movies. You got a super suit? Get suited up, you know? Or, or that Disney movie, right? Where's my super suit, right? Where's my suit? I need my suit. He's saying, suit up. You really want to kind of face the music? Well, then suit up, and then let's find out if you're ready for this. Could you imagine the terror of God showing up in a tornado, speaking to you directly? Nam, I want to talk to you. I'd be like, okay, I'm already done. I just need to die. Just, I, I, I'm done, right? But he wants to talk to you, and he tells you, okay, it's time to go, right? Get suited up. You want to question me? Then you need to get ready, because here comes my questions for you. I mean, I can ima- not imagine the terror of that. Listen, I have enough fear of man that if I criticize like a celebrity, a sports figure, and then you go, dude, LeBron James is right behind you. I'm like, hey, LeBron, uh, I meant that other LeBron James, right? Like, I, 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 I would feel so bad, right? Can you imagine if you are speaking about the living God and he shows up in a storm cloud, right, in a whirlwind to tell you, okay, you want me to show up and answer to you. Here I am, get suited up, and let's dialogue over this. Let me ask you some questions, and you make everything known to me. I think at this point, I'm serious, I think Job is just ready to just die. Like that's, I am at the end of myself, right? Nothing more need to be said. That, that's the introduction of how God begins or how he intends to answer Job. So let's take a look at the argument or the, uh, the, the actual revelation that God will bring to Job. And he begins by speaking of the realm of creation and he speaks of the depths of the earth the depths of the earth in verses 4 through 21. He begins it, I will break it up into several sections, but he begins by saying, do you know creation's wonder? Verses 4 through 7. It says this, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me. If you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy? See, God is connecting two things. He is saying it's an issue of darkening counsel. So you are claiming to understand some things and you can't figure out why I'm doing this. He says, so let's establish our credibility. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the universe? You tell me. Because if you could tell me that, you, you remind me where you were, how you were standing beside me, you probably have understanding. Because it takes much to create a world. And for you to be outside of that, to, to witness that, to be involved with that, suggests that you have depth of wisdom and understanding that is infinite. Okay, who determined his measures? You must know. Who stretched out the line, meaning like the plumb line? Who, who measured everything out and put it exactly as it should be? Who sunk its bases, meaning like you had to put it somewhere? Like if you're building a building, you have to sink down, right, the foundations and lay up its cornerstone so that you could build upon it. But verse 7 is the part that I think is particularly, um, I don't know, it's the punchline in many ways, right? It says, when the morning stars sang together. Morning stars probably refer to like the stars in the sky that you could see even in the morning. Morning star, right? Easy understanding of that. That's like the planets, like, you know, Venus. I'm not an astronomist. I don't pretend one or uh, act like one on TV, right? Like if there's, if there's a morning star out, like if Venus is close enough to see, then in the morning you go out and you see just one star kind of in the sky before the sun gets too high, right? That's the morning star. It's usually Venus and the other planets that are, that are kind of in, our, um, in the right position for us to see. That's the morning star. He's saying that the morning stars, it's like the planets were singing and the, and the sons of God, they were shouting for joy. At creation... When God made all things, he did so by merely speaking them into existence. And after they came to exist, he says, it is good. 
God says it is good. The angels are shouting with joy. And then the planets are singing out. God is saying, you remember how joyful the order of creation is. Because you must have been there for you to challenge my authority and my wisdom. You must know and have the wisdom to create a universe like that, like I did with just my words, right? To cause angelic beings and the celestial stars to sing out. Because if you don't have that perfect knowledge, it's kind of odd that you challenge my understanding and my knowledge of how things must be. Do you know, right? Do you know creation's wonder? Secondly, can you contain creation's danger? Look at verse 8 through 11. It's interesting. It's talking about the sea, but let me, let me speak to that a little bit. Verse 8 says, Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? Take those two verses for a moment. For one, God is saying there's a moment when the sea, right, burst out of the womb, meaning that it's, it's like it was birthed. It's using language of a baby being born. And it says, I made clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, its swaddling clothes. So he's literally using like an illustration. God is using an illustration of a baby, like the ocean, the seas are like this little baby that is wild and out of control, and he shut the doors on it. He says, and he prescribed, verse 10, he prescribes limits for it and set bars and doors. He put that baby in its playpen. And he said, thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. He says, could you do that, Job? Because that's what he did. But here's what's interesting about it. The idea of the sea, right, in Scripture is often the, the symbol or is a metaphor for that which is disordered, chaotic, dangerous, evil, and ultimately probably leads to death. So Job himself, in Job 7, 12, when he's complaining that God has kind of forgotten him or is mistreating him, he says this, Am I the sea or a sea monster that you set a guard over me? See, so that, that's the understanding, Right? That, that everything disordered and terrible and dangerous, right? That, that's what is represented by the powerful sea. You can understand why. If you've ever been out on like a, a deep sea fishing tour or something, you go on a boat or you've just been out on a big lake, right? If the body of water is big enough and you go out there, because of the curvature of the earth, you see no land anywhere near you. So I always imagine like if something happened and the, the boat sank, and I'm a decent swimmer, I could swim for a little while, but a little while isn't for days, right? And you can imagine just kind of being in the ocean and there's nothing around, literally no land anywhere around you. It feels dangerous. It feels vulnerable. And then the sun sets and you can't even see the subtlety of waves. There is no lights, right? Can you imagine... Right? How difficult that would be, especially for someone like Job, who is in an area that is landlocked, has probably never stepped foot onto a boat. Their understanding, the ancients' understanding of the sea was it is chaos, danger, and circumstantial evil, uncontrollable and wild. Right? That, that's their understanding of it. Uh, I had some other passages, we'll just skip on those, like Jeremiah 5.22, you can look at that on your own, I'm talking about the boundary of the sea and how it's a, it's a terrible place, etc. The point is that the sea is dangerous and powerful, a source of fear for all that walk on the earth. But to God, it's like a little baby. It's like a tantruming baby, but it's a baby nonetheless. And then what this implies, I believe, is that there are circumstantial bads, we could call that generally evil, Right? tragedies, terrible things that are part of creation, meaning not that God himself has intentionally put anything morally evil into our world, but the idea is that God has allowed right, this world to have death, to have disease, to have struggle, to have tragedy, to have that is part of this world. That's what the sea represents. But God fences it all in. God has absolute control over it. He prescribes its limits, sets bars and doors, and says to it, thus far shall you come and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. I love the ocean. I grew up going to the ocean in my 
elementary and high school uh, days during the summer, I think literally four or five days out of the week, I'd be at the beach. Hermosa, 22nd Street, that's where all, you know, our, our Asian friends hung out. It was a good time, right? And rarely would there be waves that are crazy big. And a lot of you guys, city slickers, never been to the beach, scared of like little, ah, it's big waves. It, it almost toppled me, right? Like, no, there are some times when a storm comes and the waves are so big that just the slamming down of it, you feel the resonance of it, boom. And you're like, ho, ho, ho. And the spray of it will get you even though you're standing really far back, right? And when you watch those huge massive waves, boom, boom, on the shore, the interesting thing is you're not afraid. Why? Because it has a border. And you're not sure why it has a border, because there could be a tsunami, and it could, like, if all the water starts to recede out, you need to run, right? Because this is bad news, right? A big old tsunami is coming. But usually, right, it's normal borders are such that if I stand off the wet part and on towards the dry part, no matter how much pounding it is, the most I'm going to get wet is the spray and maybe some of the whitewash that come up to my feet. So I can observe its power from a distance. Who designed a world like that? To let us get that up close to that kind of power and not be taken in immediately. Our God did. And so see, little by little, he's addressing these issues, these questions of circumstantial suffering, of evil, and letting Job know that these things have their limit because God is still in control. Evil has its place. Circumstantial evil has its place in created order. The place of chaos and death. But we'll not always be here. And not always be here. I imagine, in my mind, I think that's why, by the time we get to Revelation 21, it says that there is no sea. I think in that metaphor of that which is uncontrollable, dangerous, unknowable, chaotic, right? That's gone. In the new heavens and the new earth, there's no sea. I'm hoping that it's only metaphor because I would love it if there's a sea and an ocean to explore in the new heavens and new earth. But I think it means metaphorically that that kind of, this kind of sea, this kind of sea creatures, this kind of danger, this kind of circumstantial, it's gone. But even that, I think God's point is that that is under his control. Can you contain creation's danger? I mean, all of these, I mean, you guys know already, every question, the answer is going to be no. But the Lord, he continues on, right? C, do you summon light against darkness? Look at verse 12. It says, Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? He uses the term like commanded and caused uh, the dawn to know its place. He means, he means, have you, since the days that you have existed, Job, have you told the light to come, told the dawn to rise up? Have you called those guys? Have you summoned them like they're your soldiers to line up and do their deeds? But I love verse 13. That it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. It's like that old trick that people try once and then they realize they probably shouldn't do, right? Where you get the tablecloth, right? And you pull real fast and then everything's supposed to kind of stay there. Um, it's that trick. But it's the crumbs of your, your, your skirt or the crumbs of your napkin or whatever it is, right? That you take it and you just shake it out. What I love about that is that it is God implying that as the light comes, it shakes out he says the darkness. But in verse 13, he makes it clear he's not just talking about literal light and literal darkness. It says that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. You notice that? Verse 14, it is changed like clay under the seal. Its features stand out like a garment. In other words, as the light comes, revelation, everything gets clear. Kind of like pressing something into the shape of your Play-Doh, right? That at first, it just looks like Play-Doh. And as you press down, you look a little bit, and it's like, oh, it's starting to take some shape. You press down more, oh, it's starting to look like Elmo's face. Push a little bit more, it is Elmo's face, right? This idea of it, that the impression of it, as the light comes and the darkness scatters, you see colors, vibrancy, and what was kind of shadowy, turns out it's your mom, right? Like all these things kind of come to light. 
we use that in that figurative sense of it becomes clear. It becomes knowable. Verse 15, from the wicked, their light is withheld. He's saying now, have you commanded the light to fight against the darkness? Because the wicked will have their light withheld. And their uplifted arm, and I think uplifted, not in the sense of I need help, but uplifted like the raised fist. Like, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm greater than God, I'm greater than you, and I'm stronger than you, and that arm will be broken. It becomes then a promise of evil's end. Doesn't it? God, God is literally saying, Job, you understand how this universe works, don't you? You, you must have been part of how it was created. You must understand how to send light to combat the darkness. Because you obviously have all of this wisdom to be able to challenge and to ask why I do things the way that I do things. Because if your answer is no, and we all know that his answer is no, and our answer is no, and the God's implication here in answering Job's question of justice and whether or not the wicked are prospering, God says their light will be snuffed out because I control the light. Yes, the wheat grow alongside the tares, right? That was Jesus' parable. And God doesn't come and just cut them all down because he would cut away the wheat with the tares. He waits for everything to grow and picks them out in his own good time. See, this is, a, this is an indirect but a helpful answer to Job. The wicked will have their light denied. God is in absolute control of creation. No one gets away with anything. Friend, you are here and you need to hear that. No one gets away with anything. Every wicked thought, every wrong motive, every wrong word that has been spoken, God knows them all and every single act, action, thought, and motive must be paid in full. And there are only two options. Pay the absolute and almighty judge for all eternity yourself. Or ask his son to pay the penalty of your sins so that you might be forgiven a debt that you don't deserve to be forgiven in. That's our two options. But as for evil and its uncontrollability, its unpredictability, God's the one that knows. And he's the only one that knows its borders how far that evil will get, how long he'll allow it to continue. And even though we fight evil, and we should, as a society, as a people, as individuals, only God has absolute control over everything, good and bad, in all of creation. Fourth, have you walked the deep? Look at verse 16. Have you entered into the spring of the sea or walked the... Have you entered into the spring of the sea or walk the recesses of the chaotic, etc. Job is unlikely to have set sail on the sea. And he's saying, have you entered the springs of the sea? And by that, he means if the water was coming from the bottom and it was springing up, he is saying, have you found the source of where the water comes from? And then secondly, have you walked the recesses of the deep? And you, get, you and I know, because we're so much smarter than Job and everyone else that was before us. We're not really, but we do have a little bit more information, right? We know that the depths of the ocean can get so deep that sunlight can no longer penetrate. Like absolute pitch darkness. And there's weird, right, translucent things living down there. That is frightening and weird and wondrous all at the same time. And he's saying, have you walked down there lately? Have you walked around, you know, where the bottom, where all of the water comes from? And the answer is, of course, no. Verse 17, but look how God connects that. He says, have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Do you know how, how the entry, or where the entry to, heaven, oh, to, to, to death might be, right? 
Do you understand that kind of deep darkness? Verse 18, have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. So verse 18, he might simply mean how wide the earth is, but if it's in this context, and it's poetic, uh, if it's in that context, I mean, I think that maybe the Lord means, have you comprehended the expanse of the earth and really what is underneath the earth? Because he's been talking about the sea and what is underneath the sea and the gates of death and all of that. And so I think he's talking about, man, do you know what is underground? Do you know what is under sea? And do you know what things like that lead to the gates of death? Psalm 139.8 says, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, in the place of the dead, you are there. The deep and the place of the dead, these things are connected in that ancient mind. But even the place of the dead and the deep recesses of the ocean where light cannot penetrate, these are not off limits to God. God knows its very limits, its beginning and its end. Do you? Because if we're questioning God, if Job is questioning God, God would question us, do you have that same capacity? Do you get it? Because if you don't get it, then it's weird that you're wondering whether or not I'm doing this right. E, do you know light's dwelling, 19 through 21? Where is the way to the dwelling of light? Where is the place of darkness that you may take its territory, right? take it to its territory, that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. You see, what God is doing and kind of rounding out this particular portion of talking about the depths of the earth, right, and how His creation... Um, and the understanding of his creation signals that he has the wisdom, the cosmic knowledge, and the, and the absolute infinite wisdom to do as he should do. And he's saying, Job, since you are casting judgment on the way that I do things, do you, do you have a similar insight? See, in all these things he's asking him, do you know where is the way of the dwelling of light, where the place of darkness is, that you may take it to its territory? Look at the, the next part in verse 20, that you may discern the paths to its home. It's about his knowledge, his discernment, his wisdom, his understanding. You're questioning the infinite God. Are you infinite? Right? Job has been sitting around saying, saying, Lord, you got some explaining to do, right? And the Lord is saying, wow, your infinite mind must comprehend all of these things so that we can speak to why we're doing a billion things at once in a certain way. And if you are not infinite, then you probably don't fully comprehend. Right? Like little babies, all of them get upset with us when you take them first time to the doctor to get all of their, you know, their, their shots, right? I think it's like a three-month shot, if I remember right, right? And then they're like sitting there, they're enjoying the doctor's office at first, and then, oh, like the, the shock of their face it's kind of funny, right? Like, like you know, you're just holding them because you know they're going to cry and stuff. And they don't know better. And they're just having a good time. People are wearing white lab coats. They don't know what that means. And then all of a sudden, they put something on their skin. They put something in their skin. And there's a slow reaction. And they're like, <laughs> right? And then they like, just start crying like, what are you doing, Dad? Why would you bring me to this place of suffering, right? It is exactly that. It is us going, Lord, why didn't you make me this? smarter, taller, have better parents, you know, have a better job, meet a nice lady or, or whatever, or have kids. It's endless. Why didn't you, Lord? And it's like the Lord is saying, hold on a sec. Job, Christian, friend, who has designed the depths of this creation? Do you even know? Have you even seen everything that I've ever made? And the answer is no. We will spend an eternity figuring out just creation and how to take dominion of it. What a wondrous thing the Lord has done in the depths of the earth. The angels are shouting for joy. And without even understanding any, or, 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 you know, any of how all of that works, we have proclaimed ourselves intelligent enough, wise enough to make decisions about life and death and eternity and to determine that God, in all of his infinite power and wisdom, just, he could use some helpful hints, right? He should read my facts, right? FAQs on how he could have done this world better. It's nonsense, right? Third, 
the wonders of the heavens. And we're going to have to move a little bit quicker here. Look to the skies. We said that he began with this uh, issue of, oh my goodness, did I not? All right, we just have to look at it at one. It's kind of boring that way because you see all of them at once, but we're supposed to go through one through at a time. I must not have, uh, might not have done that right. Anyway, the wonders of the heavens. So we looked at the earth and the sea, and now we look to the sky, all right? Um, first, A, God continues, have you harnessed the storm? He returns to the storm. He's speaking out of a storm, and he says this, have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail? The term for storehouses here, I think we could think of as an armory, because the next thing he says is, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war. God is saying that, that you can imagine that somewhere off in the sky somewhere, there are these, these armories filled with snow and with hail. And when he calls upon them for a day of battle or war, he brings them down. They stand in reserve. They're his reserve armies ready to go where God sends them. Do you remember in Exodus 9, as one of uh, the plagues upon Israel, there was hail. And in verse uh, 24 of Exodus 9, says, There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, uh, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. This hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree. Of the... that, that, is, that is some heavy hail. I've only experienced hail a couple times in my life, and some of them got pretty big almost golf ball size and the sound of it on your car sounds like oh dude it's gonna break my car you know you can't you can't you can't hold god or the hail to like you know, you gotta fix my car lord you said too much hail right but there, there's like this we're talking about huge hail there was there was killing animals and beasts right breaking trees that's amazing and just so that you understand, that flashing fire is probably talking about just lightning. There's lightning and hail and lightning. All kinds of crazy stuff is going on. This, this repeats in different forms of judgment. Hail as forms of judgment like Isaiah 30, Ezekiel 13, in particular Revelation 16, 21. 100-pound hailstones right, will plummet down upon the earth and, uh, and upon people as part of the seventh bowl judgment. That's outrageously huge, right? So God is saying, have you harnessed, have you taken command as, as, the, you know, as um, the acting general over the hail and the snow? What is the way, verse 24, what is the way to the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? He's just saying, can you control the turbulent storms and use them for your purposes? I like it because it's speaking of use of particularly the storms and in particular waters for purposes that cause danger. And then the very next section, right? B, have you watered the earth? It's talking about water again, but this time as waters of life. Verse 20, 25. Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? The verb, who has cleft means that someone has plowed, right, a channel. Who's channeled the torrents of rain? And that, it's not talking about the rain falls on the mountain and God channels it down to some lake. It's talking about from the sky down, God sends the rain, he channels it to where he wants it to go. The same with the thunderbolts. To bring rain, he says, on a land where there's no man, to a desert where there's no people. Why is that significant? Because the idea is that the Lord is the one that waters even the desolate lands where human beings don't bother to irrigate, don't bother to, to, to bring water occasionally, to keep things growing and sprouting, etc. God does. He is the caretaker of the entire earth. And he's saying, so have you used water that way? Have you used water in a terrible way, A, to bring storms uh, as a form of judgment or battle, and have you sent water to those desolate places to make sure the earth continues to be as flourishing as it's supposed to be? Even the deserts require water on occasion. Do you water it? Do you have that wisdom? See, who formed the waters? It's kind of like an interlude here because he doesn't ask a question here, right? He does ask who has begotten the drops of dew, but this is verse 28. 
Has the rain a father, or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth, and who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Three kind of categories of the, of the use of water in God's hands. Rain, drops of dew, right? It's the soft water. Um, 29, the ice and the frost from heaven. This is probably talking about snow or hail. All those things he's just talked about, right? It's the icy precipitation. And then verse 30, it's talking about how water becomes hard like stone. This is true, right? If you guys have gone broom balling and you're knocking each other around and stuff, you got to be careful, right? That's like concrete if you hit that ground, but super slippery, right? The face of the deep is frozen. He's saying lakes freeze over so you can drive cars over them. That's crazy. That's how hard water can get. So different kind of forms of water. Who controls those? Who sends those? Who's made that? Who has invented this kind of thing as a basis of biological life? I could never have come up with that. Some of you might think you might, could have come up with something good like that. But God is brilliant. Did, did you know that... Um, is it, okay, I'm, I'm going to say it wrong because I'm not a scientist, so don't, don't judge me. Probably sign major. Right? Amen. Woo! Right? Um, one of the interesting things about the property of water that God has created is that as it freezes, right, um, as it solidifies, uh, it, it gets, I want to say lighter, but less dense. Is it less dense? Okay, just, just go with it. Just go with it. Non-scientific. It's got a good explanation. But the point is that it freezes from the top down. What would happen if water froze from the bottom up? Anything living in that water, in that lake, would die, right? But if God invented ice so that it floats, so that ice and the water itself freezes from the top down, so that even though they're like, dude, it's crazy cold down here, they could still live. They could still thrive until everything melts. It is brilliant. God is brilliant. We are not brilliant. We think we're brilliant because we discover what God has already in His infinite wisdom created. That is the entire point, right? We are so concerned with God, you're just not doing this right. You should love me better. You should do. Really? You are giving amazing, right, awards and Nobel Prizes because someone figures out something good about a bacteria that you could turn into an antibiotic. I invented that, fools. Right? This is what the Lord is trying to say to us. Who formed these waters? Who governs thee, the, the stars? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Uh, all interpreters are clear on the Pleiades. Loose the cords, uh, the cords of Orion. Can you lead forth the Maseroth, which is a direct transliteration of the Hebrew, because no one's certain which constellation that's talking about in their season. Or can you guide the bear right, with its children, all of those referring to like constellations of stars. Do you send them in the right time? Because if you guys don't know about stargazing, right, depending on what part of the year, you see a different section of the universe from our perspective here on earth. So it seems like, oh, you know, the Big Dipper is not out. Well, yeah, it's not supposed to be out right now, right? It'll be out in another month, right? It, it, the Orion, right? I don't see Orion's belt. Well, that's because it's not that season. It comes in its seasons. Who brings that out in its seasons? Who guides that along? Verse 33. Do you know the ordinances of heavens, of the heavens? Can you establish the rule on earth? Do you have power? Look at all the verbs. To bind, to loose, to lead, to guide. Like, do you have power over them? But that keeps leading God to issues of knowledge. Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? And can you establish the rule on earth? Wisdom is connected, right, through knowledge, which is connected through authority and ability. And God is saying, do you have that? And the answer is no. Finally, E, can you, uh, who commands the waters of life? Can you lift your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are. It's like God calls lightning. You know, here we are, Lord. Go there. Right? You know, lightning, you can't predict where it's going to strike even as you see it. Right? Because it's like it just kind of clusters based on 
I have no idea what, right? God. That's, that, that's how it determines where it goes, right? And it just kind of strikes. So can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are, who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? You see how God keeps coming back to wisdom and understanding and, and how that's connected to sovereign rule. Who can number the clouds by wisdom, not number as in, you know, count them, but number them as in you sequence them. You determine who comes in what order. Who can tilt the water skins of the heavens? Beautiful, right? It's like the, the heavens, the clouds are like, like water jugs. And who can tip them? So it's like, okay, I think Southern California could use a little water. We might get some later today, right? Like that's literally God saying, can you do such things? And who is majestic enough? Who is powerful enough? Who is wise enough to know how much and when and where? Especially when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together when it most needs it. Listen, we, we, let me just say these as kind of some concluding thoughts. Um, I think I have a slide for that, don't I? There you go. No. There. First, let me say this. God's response to Job highlights, I think, three particular, or three, there's three particular characteristics of God's response to Job that we should hang on to. One, it's a human thing. It's a human thing. It's a made-in-the-image-of-God dignity thing. Only we have the capacity or the desire to ponder such things. Is this the best way that things can be done? Is there a better way? Is this amazing that God has created a universe like this? We can know and understand these things. And the way that God has created this, this infinitely intricate universe, all the physical right, realities that are, are, are created around us are meant for us to explore and to wonder at the genius of its creation. Do you realize that? This is a human thing. And for God to show up and to point that out, at first might seem like, Lord, why don't you just answer him and go, Job, you arrogant dumb-dumb. Stop your nonsense, right? Instead, he shows up and asks him a number of questions that aim him towards who is wise enough to govern an entire universe and keep it in its exact balance, sending it to its right trajectory so that everything, including sin and death, will be defeated in the end. You? then why are you questioning my methods? It's a human thing. God doesn't have to make these arguments to animals. Just people. Second is a rhetorical thing. Rhetorical questions. God could have, like I said, God could have just told Job, you don't know what you're talking about. Your knowledge is lacking. Die, fool. Right? But he doesn't. Rhetorical questions draw us into the reasoning behind the question. It causes us to not just go, okay, because Job is constantly saying, no, I, I wasn't there. No, I, I, I don't know. No, I, I don't know how that works. And no, I, I didn't do that. No, 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 no. But as he's saying no, he's beginning to think behind why God is saying this. And he's saying, no, Lord, I'm not you. And it's probably dawning on his heart. That's exactly what he needs to remember. I'm not you, Lord. You are the only God. And we are not your equal. We are not your equal enough to demand that you reframe, you know, yourself into what we want. Only you are infinitely wise. Only you are wise enough to govern this universe and every human being and their lives, all its benefits and all its dangers. And the rhetorical question draws us in to see, what have we been asking? We're out of our frame of thinking. And finally, God's sovereignty God's sovereignty, especially over evil. We're forced to banish this very human-centered idea of dualism, right? It's a cosmic struggle between God and Satan. And like the yin and yang, right? They just kind of, kind of balance each other out until one will finally, hopefully win. And that's false. There is only one power in the universe, and that is a God that is capable of judgment and justice and righteousness and of love and mercy and grace. And all of that that I just mentioned takes us right to the cross. That's how Job leads us to Jesus. Because it reveals to us the God that has never lost control. And that in his perfect control and plan, he has sent a plan of salvation for us in his son Jesus Christ. So that his righteousness and his mercy can meet at the cross.
This is who God is. And this is what Job needs to remember. This is God, and this is me. And that's a better answer than, oh, because I wanted to write your story in a book and let people know that I'm kind of in control. Right? You don't always need the exact particulars, but you need to remember who you are and who God is for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness and all that you give to us and all that you do around us, the things that are invisible to us because your sovereignty reminds us, Lord, that you are God and we are not. So Lord, even in our difficult moments, in the dark days, help us to lean in on your sovereign purposes and your absolute grace and love. We will trust in you, Lord, because we can trust nothing else. In Jesus' name we pray.